Hey, and welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. We are a church that is for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. We are passionate about helping people become fully devoted followers of Jesus. So if you're just joining us for the first time, we would love for you to check out our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. There you can find ways to connect with us and see what's happening at Crosspoint. Now, let's listen to this week's Sunday message. Thank you, thank you. Oh man, I knew this would be coming, and uh, I'm just so bad with getting that praise and applause. It's it's so uncomfortable. But thank you, thank you so much. <clears throat> my name is Daniel. I'm the one of the pastors here on staff, and I'm my first time on the stage. So thank you for the welcome, and it's been a great time being interim youth pastor. But uh, I want to get into the word right right away here. These days, I wear many hats, right? Interim youth pastor is one of them, masters of counseling students, and husband extraordinaire. <laughs> that last one is self-designated. You have to ask Adele what she thinks. But the hat that I love mostly to wear these days is one of being a stay-at-home dad to my daughter, Havila. I'm learning so much. Uh, as a parent, and I'm happy to share with you the things I learned today. That's our picture of our family there, uh, little Havila there. So, some things I've learned as a parent. Write it down if, you have, if you're taking notes. Number one, sleep is a valuable resource, okay? It is extremely limited when you're a parent, and it should never be taken for granted ever again, okay? What are germs anyways? Whether it's swapping soothers with small group soulmates or eating food that's been tossed on the ground, the five-second rule is the golden rule here. The third thing I learned is there are many ways to change a diaper, especially in Chinese restaurants where there is no change table. My favorite is propping my leg against this washing stall, having Havla between my legs, and surgically removing the diaper without any casualties or crying baby. It's quite difficult, but it's possible. The, the world is uh, like so much to the world when you are creative. Parenting Havla has taught me so much about myself and about life, and I also see that it has changed even my relationship with God. Even though there are some really hard days with Havila, when she's crying all night and waking up at ungodly hours, or she's just unconsolable, I know deep down that she will always be my daughter, and there's nothing that she can do to change that. And it really helps me understand how God sees me on my worst days, and when I come to him in deep remorse, thinking what I need to do before I, he accepts me again. But he doesn't. Just as I look at Havilah as her father, there's nothing that I can do that God will not love me anymore because he sees me as his child. And so parenting has really helped me read the scriptures with new eyes. The passage we're going to look at today is no different. We're going to continue in the book of John, and we're going to look at the story of Jesus healing the official son. And as you read, I want us to keep in mind that the author wrote this book, John. He wrote this book to reveal to us who Jesus is. He wants his readers to fully see and embrace the personhood of Jesus in all his glory. So the question I have for us today 
is what does this story tell us about who Jesus is and how are we to respond to him? As we will see, the healing of the official son is a peculiar one. Why does John include this story into the, the Gospels? Why is this considered one of the seven signs? And what can we actually learn about our faith from Jesus healing this man's son? And the main point, the, the big idea I want us to take away from this today is that Jesus meets our deepest needs even when he doesn't grant our most earnest requests. And so if you're following along, we're in John chapter 4, verse 43 to 54. I'm reading from the New Living Translations. At the end of two days, Jesus went to Galilee. He himself had said that a prophet has, is not honored in his own hometown. Yet the Galileans welcomed him, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and had seen everything he did there. You see, it's interesting to me that Jesus went to Galilee, the former northern kingdom of Israel, after it was conquered by Assyria in the 8th century. Galilee was decisively distinct from its southern province, Judea, which contained the city of Jerusalem. Geographically, Galilee, it, it's, it's quite weird. It's, it's separated from Judea by Samaria. And culturally, the Judeans, they despise the Galilean because of their lack of Jewish sophistication. They were more open to Hellenistic influence around them, and they were not Jewish enough. Let's keep reading. As he traveled through Galilee, he went to Cana, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a government official nearby Capernaum, whose son was very sick. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son, who was about to die. Now, I want you to keep note that the distance from Cana to Capernaum is 26.51 kilometers, about half a marathon, on rugged terrain. It'll be about five hours to walk. Jesus asked, will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? The, the official pleaded, Lord, please come now before my little boy dies. Then Jesus told him, go back home. Your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. While the man was on his way, some of his servants met with him. The news that his son was alive and well. He asked them when the boy had begun to be, get better. And they replied, yesterday afternoon at one o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. Then the father realized that that was the very time Jesus had told him, your son will live. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. This was the second miraculous sign Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judea. Let me pray for us this morning. Jesus, we thank you for this text. We thank you that you speak to us. You are revealing yourself to us. We pray that we have faith like the royal official did in this story. We, have, we pray that we have faith today. And if not, would you give us faith? Pray this in your name. Amen. This is such a strange story. It's Jesus working in this official's life. He, the, the official comes to Jesus with a specific request, and Jesus responds to him, and then he believes. But I wonder what we can learn about our faith from this encounter. And this leads me to my first point. The official forms a fervent, fixated faith. You're going to find that. I, I like alliteration. So, It was not an easy journey from Cana to Capernaum. Like I said, it would have taken half a day 
to make the journey through the weathered Middle Eastern terrain. In verse 46, it says Jesus came to Cana, where he had turned water into wine. The royal official undoubtedly heard of Jesus' miracle at the wedding of Cana earlier and had probably heard Jesus from various people over time. The Galilean royal official had not met Jesus, yet it was enough for him to pack his horse and gallop to Capernaum from Cana. The royal official or nobleman was evidently, he, he was very high in his ranking. He was probably one of the officials in Herod's court and therefore a man of great influence and power. He was also a man of great wealth, as Herod's men were apt to be. He could send servants to make the trip for him and get, gather the message. He was a royal official, a nobleman. He's used to ordering people around. Here's a man by anyone's standard could have had anything he possibly wanted except for this one thing. His young son was seriously ill. He made the half a day's journey himself to see Jesus. The passage also goes on to say that this royal official begged Jesus. He was fervent. He was fixated. He was persistent. The nobleman in Herod's court was at the mercy of another person. He was so indifferent to the noise of the crowd around him, unaware. And all this evidence points to one thing, that he was desperate, pleading for his son's life. There's a part of me that understands deeply this nobleman's plea for his child. You see, ever since becoming a parent, I act differently. Before Havilah, I was a lot more reckless and carefree. I was spending my months tree planting in the summers when I was going to school and university. And even though we had safety meetings, there was nothing safe about that job. Everything and anything can kill you. I could fall off a cliff. I could fall on a branch. I could get hypothermia. I could get heat stroke. I could be eaten by a bear, stung by bees, trampled by a moose. And even then, I loved it. <laughs> I wanted to go back every summer. But now, now everything is different. Now, Havel is born, and I have to take my life a little seriously. I have to be a little careful. <clears throat> Someone else is dependent on me. And even Adele, my wife, would mention, you don't even jaywalk anymore. You don't even, you don't even run yellow lights. And I'm like, no yellow light is going to harm my daughter. <laughs> even nowadays, I, I just feel like such a sappy softy. The movies and TV shows I watch that portray parent and child relationships cause me to be so emotional. I've never been like that before. Recently, I started watching Avatar 2, The Way of Water, The Last of Us series, or even Bluey, a cartoon about a dog that I just, I just can't help it, but all this emotion just wells up inside of me. There's one time when Havila was first born in the delivery room that I was terrified as a parent. No parent ever wants to outlive their child, and I felt there was a single moment that I thought that was gonna be me. We were having a healthy pregnancy, and Havila was showing great signs of being super healthy. The delivery process was relatively quick and smooth. However, the moment that she came out, I saw this bitty blue body struggling to breathe 
not making any blubbering or blabbering noises. It wasn't the picture I had in my head when my baby was supposed to enter the world. She, she was choking on the substances that swirled around in the room. There were doctors attending to Adele, and there are doctors who grabbed Havilah immediately, but no one was congratulating us immediately at this birth. No one was assuring me that everything was going to be okay with Havilah. And in that single moment, I began to worry. And my worry became panic. As I watched the doctors operate on my poor little baby, I would watch them put this giant tube that looked giant, but it's probably pretty small, but it's this giant tube just putting it down her tiny throat to clear her breathing cavities. A minute felt like eternity as I felt the airs in my lung leave just as the doctor sucked out the substances in, this min in the miniature bagpipes of my daughter. What if she doesn't make it? Is this the end for her? She hasn't even lived a minute, and I don't even know how to even cope with this. In that moment, I felt like I would have done anything to clear out her passageways, and then you could hear her breathe again. But soon enough, the doctors were able to, to clear them out, her passageways, and they can hear little howls. The cries I now find so annoying and so stressful and so debil debilitating was once the only thing that I longed for from my newborn child. I could understand the desperation of this father for his son. His son was seriously ill. He probably watched his son contracted this fever and his life was slowly draining, draining away. I could imagine how hard it must have been to witness the color fading from his young face, the light in his eyes beginning to dim, and his, the sun finally lapsing into intermittent coma. It would have been unbearable. I understand the extreme measures of the father who was willing to take his own, to willing to take the measures he was willing to take for his child. He was not willing to send servants or messengers. He wanted to go himself because he was intending to beg Jesus. As a royal official, he could have pulled rank and have people at his command. But as a father to a dying child, he was utterly powerless. This caused the royal official to form a fervent, fixated faith. He was unwavering in his desperate attempt to save his child unrelenting in his pestering of Jesus. But his request was met with the unlikeliest of responses. This leads me to my second point. Here we go with the alliterations. Jesus offers flaky, feeble feedback. I want you to think for a moment. How would you respond if someone came to you in their most desperate situation and you could help them? What would you do? you would probably relieve some of their pain to some extent. But listen to how Jesus responds. In verse 48, after the royal official finished pleading his case, Jesus says this, Will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? I mean, ouch! This is a startling statement. Jesus seems to rebuke this man for his lack of faith. He tells him, your faith isn't good enough. Is this 
Some kind of twisted joke Jesus is making? Jesus seems so detached and cold and unsympathetic. The man just poured out his heart to this wonder worker who has, he heard about, and now it looks like it's been thrown back in his face. Jesus does not spring up and take action to heal this man's son. The royal official is definitely going to need to book a counseling session with me after this encounter with Jesus. It was very cold, very unsympathetic. Is Jesus not the compassionate God we read about through Scripture? Is this man and his son not good enough for Jesus to heal him? Is Jesus just waiting for the right time? Why does Jesus give such a harsh response and seemingly detached answer to this man's immediate need? Hmm. Could there be more to this story than we understand? Perhaps Jesus understood something different about the situation than what we are presented here. And what I want to say I did not understand this situation until I had to put on my parent glasses. And let me explain what I mean here. You see, Havala, she's growing up so fast. She can walk now. And a lot of people will say, oh, that's amazing. She's developing so nicely. Next stage of development, she's running. And for me, I'm just like, no, it's exhausting. No, this is not a blessing at all. She's running now. Whenever we leave the house, we would come out to the front and we walk to the car. And often our hands are full. We're loading up with our diaper bags with some, with some things we want to bring for the day, uh, what we need for the trip. And we, well, we, can't, we, don't, we can't carry Havilah with all the stuff in our hands. We're walking into the car. We don't have a third arm to just grab Havilah with us. So in this case, it's nice that she can walk with us along to the car. It would be nice if she would walk with us along to the car. <laughs> However, I know you're laughing because you understand this. What ends up happening is that the work uh, that we load ourselves up with so much stuff, we open the door and then unleashes Havla to run onto the streets, run for the hills. We would work our way down the, she would work her way down the driveway onto that street so you can see in the picture. And at that point, we have to drop all of her stuff and go run after her. You see, for Havilah, she loves the outdoors. She has learned to love the outdoors, just like her dad. She might be a tree planter one day. And she loves playing in the playground down the road. And you see, for her, the streets are the only thing that's holding her back from her destiny with pure freedom and bliss. For us as parents, the streets are actually a hazard. This is terrifying. The streets are not made for little kids to be running across. With child eyes, Havila knows the route we take to the playground each time. And it's always been safe when we go. She had never had to account for large vehicles that could miss her little body scurrying around the streets. With parent eyes, though, we just see that the streets are a dangerous place for a child to be roaming around alone. Even if there are no cars immediately, they could be one that's turning the corner. Havilah needs to be held or guided in a safe manner. With child eyes, her parents are fun killers. Like, oh, we got to ruin my group. What are you doing, parents? Oh, you suck. With parent eyes, we realize that the bag that we just dropped had eggs in it, and we had to pick up half an hour. Now the eggs are gone. <laughs> Similarly, Jesus saw with parent eyes the situation for the Galilean official. Although he came to Jesus, the Galilean official, with this urgent request, Jesus knew there was something deeper, a deeper issue at play. 
With child's eyes, you see, the royal official could only see his dire circumstances that needed imminent relief. With parent eyes, Jesus was addressing the spiritual drought, not just in this man, but all those present who were witnessing his signs and wonders. When he says, unless you, plural, unless you, plural people, see miraculous signs and wonders, he was referring not only to the nobleman, but also to all the Galileans whose tendency the nobleman represented. Jesus' words would lift the man to new levels of faith, and likewise, anyone else who would listen and respond. There were people following Jesus from Judea and Samaria, as if Jesus was the latest religious sideshow. There was such an extreme focus on his signs and wonders that the people were the perp- they were there and they're wondering why Jesus was there in the first place. In verse 43, it's interesting that John makes mention that a prophet is not honored in his own hometown. Why was Jesus not accepted in his own town? In the prologue in John, it says, He came to the world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, but even they rejected him. Going back to the parent eyes and the child eyes, we see that Jesus and the Israelites saw two different things. With child eyes, the Judeans were looking for a king. And they can only imagine in their minds the king that they were familiar with, that they knew about, that they heard about. The great King David, who ruled with military might and strategic combat tactics with a band of barbaric warriors. King David was able to liberate the Israelites from pagan nations and bring them into an age of prosperity. The Judeans, with child eyes, they could only see a prophet like Moses or Elijah one who wanders the wilderness, drawing fire from heaven and casts plagues among their enemies. But what they get instead is this carpenter from Nazareth. And it didn't fit their understanding of who this long-awaited Messiah should be. His own people rejected him. They couldn't see what was right in front of them. With child eyes, the Judeans followed Jesus from Jerusalem during the Passover, through Samaria, all the way to Galilee, waiting for him to show them a sign that he is the one. And sign after sign, they witnessed and observed and remained unchanged and unconvinced. That is why Jesus seemingly responds to this poor, helpless Galilean. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. But with paradise. Jesus recognized the demise of the Israelite people. He sees the dark fate of the unfortunate who missed the point of the signs. With parent eyes, Jesus addresses a need of the royal official he didn't even know he had. With parent eyes, Jesus wanted the people to see him as the anointed one sent by God. I don't always understand what God wants from me. I don't always understand why God has given Adelnai Havilah. Also, I don't always understand why God has given us a second baby on the way when there are close people in our lives who suffer with miscarriages and heartache. And I know we prayed for them and we begged and we pleaded and persisted and sought after God, just like the royal official chasing after Jesus. Father, please, 
heal my son. And it's not fair. And it seems wrong. In these moments, I grieve for my friends. I question God. I demand a sign. Show me something that I can trust you with. And in those times, when I need him the most, I feel like I get nothing. Nothing except his word in the Bible that says he is still good. It leaves me with the question that the official had to face when he pleaded with Jesus one last time. Lord, please come now before my son dies. Jesus gives him nothing more than his word. Go back home. Your son will live. From the royal official, there was no arguing, no pleading, no insistence on just a little sign, please. He simply remembered what he had heard about the wedding miracle at Cana. He looked at Jesus standing before him. He added it all up and believed. Verse 50 says, And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. What a stark contrast that is to the crowd who demanded a sign from Jesus as a Messiah but remained skeptical and suspicious. Here's a man who had everything on the line and did not even receive any sort of insurance for his troubles. May I suggest that the book of John is about seeing and believing. John brings these true groups of people in this story and write them in the same story so that we see the parallels. One group who has followed Jesus and sees signs constantly, wonders constantly, and still not believed and not convinced and unchanged. But this man who has, give, who has been given nothing believes. John 1.12 in the prologue, it says, But to all who believe him and accept him, he gave them the right to become children of God. Jesus' assurance was enough for the man to believe as he started on his journey home. Jesus gave him flaky, feeble feedback, but it was enough for the man. Something radical happened inside that man that day. He had faith before seeing the results. He took Jesus by his word. He became a child of God. What is remarkable is that even though his people rejected him, Verse 43 says, yet the Galileans welcomed him, which leads me to my third point. The royal official found a firm following foundation. It must have been a weird journey home for the official. How is he going to explain this to his wife? What was he going to say to the people back home if his son was not healed? He would have been crushed. It would have been a failed rescue mission, and he would have faced the responsibility of not doing enough to save his son. He could have dismissed Jesus' declaration and demand that Jesus comes with him. He could have walked on to the following town and find another wonder worker that would be willing to work with his son. But in that moment, it tells us that he believed in Jesus. The man was left with the question that you and I must confront every day. Will I still believe in Jesus, even though he did not answer my prayer immediately? It makes me wonder how often we come to Jesus in our most earnest state, asking God to answer our prayers. We believe that the harder we pray or the longer we fast, that God will give us what we ask for. 
We plead and we beg and we do the ritual dance to get God on our side, but we don't see the immediate miracles and the wonder-working power of God. Maybe you're in a season like that right now. You're waiting for that favorable diagnosis or you've just been praying for the right job. You're desperate for your marriage to work or your kid to reconcile with you. You've been patiently waiting for the one or you lost the partner, your lifelong partner in your life and God has been ever so silent and you're stuck in this hard relationship where no one is seeing you eye to eye on important issues and you look to God and you plead and you beg and you get nothing. Will you trust God even then? Will you trust his word? Will you trust that he is who he says he is? His goodness, his power, his love for you, his promises. Even when you must go weeks and months and years, decades without receiving what it is you prayed for. Or can you only believe in God if he gives you what you want when you want it? Are you similar to the Judeans who Follow Jesus around for a sign or wonder or only remain cynical. You see, God is God. And he reserves the right to rule and reign over creation how he pleases. His creation has little say on how he orchestrates the galaxies. Yet like a tiny toddler with a tantrum, we weep and we wrestle and we get all wound up when God withholds our wishes. But not the royal official. He was different. You see, in verse 41, or 51 to 54, it says, While the man was on his way, some of his servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. He asked them when the boy had begun to get better, and they replied, Yesterday afternoon at one o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. Then the father realized that that was the very time Jesus had told him, Your son will live. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. This was a second miraculous sign Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judea. Notice something especially interesting here. The word yesterday. The royal official left at 1 p.m. and hurried back to Capernaum. Understand that he could have arrived home by 5 p.m. It wasn't a long journey. I told you it was 26.51 kilometers. It was about half a day. And yet, if he left on his horse, he could have been home immediately after he heard from Jesus. But he did not return immediately until the next day. He stayed in Capernaum a little longer. He believed so thoroughly in Jesus' word that his child would recover that he stayed in Cana for a little while longer. Perhaps he had some business to take care of. Perhaps he wanted to stay and talk to Jesus a little more. Maybe he hoped to have a further word with Jesus. And then when, we meet, when he met with his servants on the road, he was informed his son was recovered. He asked what time it happened. When they reply, re, replied it occurred at 1 p.m., he made the note that it was the same time Jesus said it would. You see, that's an incredible story of faith. The official believed Jesus before the miracle. He trusted him before he saw any evidence Jesus is who he says he is. The more we reflect upon this encounter, the more wonderful it seems. And then his whole household believed. I would like to have a faith like the royal official. But on most days, I'm fickle and I falter and I fail. I fumble in my faith. 
Jesus wanted this man to go beyond the signs and believe his word, which leads to this conclusion. How? How do we have a faith like the official? Let me ask you, Crosspoint Church, what is your deepest need? What have you been asking God for and you have not received an answer for yet? If you're willing, I would like you to hold out your hand and close your eyes and picture yourself holding the deepest need you have before Jesus, something that's so personal to you. I want you to imagine standing before Jesus. I want you to pay attention, holding out this need before Jesus. What do you feel? Are you hesitant? Are you doubtful? Are you scared? Or do you have the strength to withstand the hardships holding on to you only with a hint of what Jesus has unveiled to you. I want you to pay attention to what's going inside of you. What are you feeling? You can lower your hands and open your eyes. May I suggest to you that the book of John is about seeing and believing. John writes that this is the second miraculous sign that Jesus performs after the wedding in Cana. All these accounts that John collects is to mark the moments in Jesus' ministry that point to his sonship in God. To have faith like the official requires two conditions. The first is to take Jesus at his word. And the second is to walk the journey home. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes through hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. We have full access to the Word of God through the internet, through our, the pages and scriptures on our phones and our tablets. Pastor Micah actually did us the work of compiling some resources for us, a couple of reading plans and resources that we could use to follow along in our John series. But I wonder, as we look at these resources, version reading plan, the Spotify immersive audio, audiobook, the YouTube verse-by-verse dramatization, and the Bible Project self-study. I wonder, as we carry our deepest needs into reading these again, what what would the Holy Spirit reveal to you? What does God want to say to you in your season of life? I know for me, as I worked through this study, I saw it with paradise and has illuminated this season of my life and what Jesus and how God wants to relate to me in this season. I wonder what would happen if you brought your deepest need and your time with the word. Just as a royal official made the trip to see Jesus, though, we also have to walk that journey home. Do you believe and see? Do you trust him more? If you do, your belief must be reinforced by the action because that's a second condition. Take what you believe and put it into action. If you truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then walk. Enough with the excuses. Live the life that Jesus has called you to in obedience and trust that he will follow through on his promises. Make the journey home like the official did with little to no reassurance for his troubles, but a heart full of faith. Even though the road may be hard and long and silent, God is always good. And he will fulfill his promises. Whatever God is calling you to do, 
if it's to take the party pack and start in your neighborhood, even though you're scared, walk in it in obedience, knowing that the, your heavenly Father loves you deeply and He sees your deepest need. May you be encouraged today by the word, by this royal official's faith. May it be your faith today. Let's pray together as we close our time. Jesus, we may not always understand. We may not have parent eyes to see just the limited things that we see in front of us. But you are God of the universe and you're working everything for your glory, for your good. You've said that in your word. Would we picture ourselves before you having that faith that the royal official did and holding on to it? And I don't know where we're at today, God, what cross point people are going through, but God, you know. Would you gently lead us into greater faith? Would you help us to see what you want us to see? Would you help us believe who you want us to believe you are? God, we need you so much in this. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I believe I get the honor, the benediction. So would you stand with me as I close this off? And I wrote it here because I don't want to get it wrong. <laughs> but you are the people of God, called by God into his redemptive mission, into the world. So go and be who you are. Hey, and welcome back. Thanks for listening to this Sunday's message. We hope that we've helped you in your spiritual journey and that you're drawing closer to God. At Crosspoint, we gather on Sundays at 10 a.m. in Northeast Edmonton and throughout the week in something we love to call home groups. Home groups are encouraging and transformational communities for people just like you. We believe that the journey of faith is done together. So we hope that you'll connect with us at thecrosspointchurch.ca. Now, let me remind you of who you are. You are the people of God, called by God into his redemptive mission in the world. So be who you are.